Welcome to the J3 University Podcast. Each week, we bridge the gap between science and in-the-trench experience for physique enhancement. I'm your host, John Jewett. Let class begin. Welcome, everyone, to the J3U Podcast. I'm John Jewett, your host, and with me, as always, is co-host Luke Miller. How's it going, Luke? Pretty good, man. Excited for today's topic. Definitely. And we have the honored guest, Dr. Dean St. Martin. He's a formulator for succulent needs, also a PhD in organic chemistry. He's uh, worked as a chemical engineer and is a competitive bodybuilder as well. So Dr. Dean St. Martin, welcome to J3U Podcast. Brilliant, John. Thank you very much for you and Luke <coughs> chasing me down to get on the podcast. I've, I've been looking forward to coming on to chat about what we're going to speak about today. Yeah, I've uh, been following you for a while. I initially came across you through trainbyjp.com yeah. and uh, putting out information there and a very thought out approach, uh, digging into actual science and trying to find out, the, like I had mentioned, like finding the whys to why things are happening in the body and then applying the hows of, of what we should be doing to address problems or just coming up with some type of framework of how we should be applying safer use PEDs, um, and, and not just that, but also health considerations. And that goes into training, nutrition, everything that we do. And so with what I'm trying to do is, of course, bodybuild. Our, our goals ultimately try to build muscle at such a like a, <laughs> a lower level kind of goal. But, but big picture, we want to be able to do this for a long period of time. And we do run into issues in this process of being enhanced bodybuilders. Um, specifically what I want to talk about today was around the digestive issues, which they occur. And we see a lot of like band-aids that get thrown into this mix of like, Oh, I have reflux. We'll take an antacid or a protein pump inhibitor. Um, and it's, it's not solving the root issue. And so that's what I really wanted to dive into you today. Like what are these root issues that we're getting around and how do we address them? So maybe you can uh, kickstart us off with just, the general, like, what are these main digestive issues that you have come across working with, with bodybuilders? And then we'll kind of go down the rabbit hole of, of where, what the background is on those. Yeah, so, so as you touched on, when it sort of comes to digestive issues with bodybuilders, they tend to either just ignore the problem. So it could be someone in the middle of an off-season that's pushing very high volumes of food and ignoring the fact that their gut is quite distended, they have gas, you have toilet issues and just keep hammering food in the hopes that something sticks. When we start to see digestive issues arise, it's starting to tell us that something either within our digestive system. So with the digestive system, I classify that as the stomach, the liver, the pancreas and the small intestine. Um, and obviously your mouth and chewing, that, that's a given. But in, in terms of the main organ systems, stomach, liver, pancreas, small intestine. When guys start to develop, say, for example, stomach reflux, uh, stomach acid reflux, we have to then consider what is actually causing that stomach acid to be produced in, in excess. Or is it actually a physical issue whereby the sphincter at the, top of, at the bottom of the esophagus or the top of the stomach is now completely relaxed and is allowing some stomach acid to actually burn the lower lining of the esophagus? So this sort of can be applied to both natural and enhanced athletes this digestive stress because of it can be then elicited through increased food volume 
So your digestive process slow down. You're not making enough stomach acids to break down animal protein and flesh. You're having um, skewed release of lipase from the liver and pancreas that breaks down fats. And that ultimately then just leads to malabsorption when everything arrives in the small intestine. If stuff isn't adequately broken down to be absorbed, because you have to think stomach is what does the digestion and the breaking down. It's actually the small intestine that takes the nutrients and takes it into the body itself to be transported for nutrient delivery and partitioning. So we have to then assess, is it that mechanical or physical fault that's happened? Or have we now generated a problem where we have a lack of stomach acid, either induced by uh, chronic ingestion of foods that are quite allergenic to that person, or all stemming to what we're sort of going down the rabbit hole in a while about is histamine and failing to appreciate high levels of protein will ultimately raise histidine levels. So histidine is an amino acid and that feeds into histamine production. So as a, an after cause of eating high protein, you're going to generate large amounts of histidine, which will then play into histamine production. And that histamine then can play either into increase in gut motility, so you end up with diarrhea. It can play into those proton pumps that you spoke about a moment ago that facilitates uh, hydrogen ion secretion into the stomach to generate hydrochloric acid. And that in itself then is obviously going to raise the amount of stomach acid you're producing and feed into that reflux. So there, there's several things that we, we have to consider from a dietary perspective. And then there's all these hidden things that, again, people tend to not really think about. And that's, you know, gut pathogens, uh, a disbalance in terms of gut flora, opportunistic yeast infections, parasites. The list is endless when it comes to the actual intestine and contributing to poor gut health and digestive stress. So is that, you know, going through this, you, you initially have someone that's going into this off-season phase and push, starting to push higher food volumes, and maybe they've never had issues before, but you're saying just this the mechanical level, like, of, of actually reaching this volume where there's maybe some limits just naturally with that, hey, we're just not going to be able to produce enough, maybe, maybe stomach acid, digestive enzymes, lipase enzymes to handle this food volume. Um, and, and maybe this isn't even PED related and, and yeah. that, that there is, because well, in my understanding, like for most of the time, we're going to be able to have a sufficient production in pancreatic enzymes, stomach acid. But when these extremes happen that you're just unable to produce some amounts, then that's when the digestive processes like have issues. So before even getting, I guess, into the, the PED realm and talking about like histamine and what's driving that. Uh, for someone that just truly like, hey, I have large food volumes and now I'm insufficiently creating like not, not maybe not enough stomach acid or um, maybe not enough enzymes. Would just the simple fix from there be, hey, add in some digestive enzymes or, uh, you know, butane HCL or something like this before having to dive further down to some other mechanisms? You could. So again, what, what you're sort of getting to there is that there's, there's just an insufficiency where the body's genetic capability to produce these enzymes is, has hit its rate limiting step. Yeah. So again, there's, there's even genetic issues in certain individuals where someone may not be producing as much lipase as an, another person. 
And that itself could feed into, you know, diabetic problems where you're not breaking down fat efficiently and leading into the other sort of health implications of having increased fats within our body and, you know, in terms of fatty liver disease, et cetera, that all has a, a mechanistic role in developing, you know, type two diabetes. So for someone in that regard, if they weren't making enough lipase on a genetic level, then yeah, adding in lipase or a specific pancreatic enzyme that's required that's in, I guess, a deficiency would be the first step of action. But because we know it's not actually something that's being driven by the food itself. It's just that the body doesn't have the capability to make up for that food volume. It's, it's other, tough. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say the other sort of side to it then is you tell that person to, you know, do regular bouts of fasting to give those organs a break, basically. Same way that we'd approach improving insulin sensitivity and increasing, you know, insulin output of the beta cells, the pancreas, we'd lower carbohydrate consumption. It depends on, you know, timeframes for that athlete. Can they afford to do, you know, chronic periods of fasting for a short period of time in order to just gain back a level of appetite even as well? And, you know, take advantage of that, um, I guess, mitigating motor complex that's in our gut that cleans out any of those sort of autophagy, you know, we're breaking down debris that's within the small intestine and clearing it out. That can play an important role then towards digestive health overall as well. That, that might that might have jumped around to the end of what our conversation was of like solutions of things but like we bring up like what all these things could be like with food volumes decreased lipase input maybe increase in histidine which is driving that histamine issue um gut pathogens gut dysbiosis like now you have this list going through of like to even disseminate of like where do you even start with this when you're having that issue and um, I guess I don't want this to expand to where we're so general and broad, right? Because each thing yeah. is addressed, but also someone listening, you're like, where, are, where do you even, where do you start with that, right? Um, if you're having this issue pop up, like, hey, I'm having reflux or some gas. And it's like, I have all these things, avenues to, to look at. So um, that's, that's a tough one to navigate. I, maybe if we could touch on it, but I know that's a whole podcast on itself. Yeah, I think the the simplest way that we have to always view this is what what is triggering the issue, and that's food, food intake that's then driving the digestive distress or dis, the digestive dysregulation. And quite simply, then we we go down the route of either you know doing a elimination diet or we strip it back to single food ingredient diets where we we completely eliminate any influence from. A, a chemical perspective of say processed foods where there's multiple ingredients within our food and we strip that right back to something simple where we can start to then slowly add in I guess multi-ingredient foods until we start to see a problem arise. I, I guess the other thing that people fail to realize or even think about is even something as simple as, as bread where it's a multi-ingredient food. Anything that you ingest ultimately ends up you know, being digested or assimilated and the liver plays a key role in that. And if your liver is having to do biotransformations of several different chemicals that's coming in from your food, you're adding to the overall, what you could call toxic burden to your body. So that in itself plays a hidden role that most people don't even think about. They'll just view, you know, oh, I'm eating bagels, bagels as bread. Uh, that's a single food ingredient when it's not really you have to really think critically of what's actually going into the system 
and then strip them back from there, basically. And you're, you're, you're talking going right back to like boring, you know, single grains, oats, rice, uh, lean proteins. You're really going back to basic foods and then build them from there to see what actually triggers the problem. Yeah, and that, that makes sense. That's a normal, uh, a common approach of like looking at your, your food mop type foods that it cause bloats, get bloating gas and, and, and kind of like your normal culprits that we start working with. Um, yeah. So that might be a good starting point. But I guess let's paint the situation so we can actually get into the topic we're really going to hit, which let's make yeah. the assumptions that we've been following this diet where we have great digestion. There's no issues present currently, gas, bloating, no reflux. And then we have the introduction of performance enhancing drugs. Maybe this is a higher level because we have these guys that blast and cruise, right? Or uh, yeah. HRT into like a higher dosage of, of compound levels. And then the diet, let's say the diet doesn't change and all of a sudden we have now present presentation of GI distress. There's, there's reflux occurring. And so now we can maybe, maybe we can pinpoint this a little bit more like, hey, my foods haven't changed. Um, other lifestyle factors haven't changed. My stress is still managed. Sleep is the same. And we pinpointed down like, hey, something's going on with these compounds I've introduced. And so let's start that conversation with you uh, around how uh, androgens, would impact digestive processes. Yeah, so how, how I sort of put this simply in the past was any side effect that comes from androgen use is androgen receptor activation. You're always going back to, I have X side effect, other than, you know, we can't classify estrogen because that's a, an aromatase conversion, but any side effect we tend to see from health consequences with AAS use, it's androgen receptor activation or nuclear steroid receptor activation. So from a positive perspective, androgen receptor activation in terms of our, our muscle tissue is a positive in that we, we activate the androgen receptor. It causes transcription of a gene, which then leads to translation of a protein and so forth and, you know, increased protein accretion. So we see this positive effect from docking to a muscle androgen receptor. But throughout the whole body, there's androgen receptors on every type of cell in our body. And our immune system is also rich in androgen receptors also. So as sort of an aside to sort of set this sort of conversation up, you'll hear guys talking about test flu, which in other words is androgen receptor activation following a superphysiological elevation in testosterone within your body. And what that does is it irritates your monocytes and your macrophages to basically become irritated and seek out a pathogen in the body. And that's why we find for you know a period of maybe two weeks when someone begins under endeavor to a superphysiological level, they feel quite run down because their body is actually trying to respond to something that's not even there. Now, when we break down our immune system into the different types of cells, we then have what are known as mast cells and our basophils. And the mast cells and basophils, um, basophils secrete histamine in order to combat any pathogens, blood-borne pathogens. And our mast cells are contained within um, granulocytes, which are mainly around our connective tissues. They tend to store histamine in response then, if a pathogen does invade, they're able to release the, the contents of the granule, which is a flood of histamine into our body. 
this is sort of where then a couple of years ago when Luke Sandow had asked me about having bad digestive problems during his prep, I started to really critically think like this wasn't something I thought really beforehand. And then I said, actually, what is causing that problem? Like there has to be a clear root cause to why people are suffering with digestive stress when they use androgens. And then I started to look at some old papers and immunostaining of mast cells for androgen receptor sites. And they were flooded with androgen receptors. So in other words, we have the same scenario happening like with test flu, whereby when someone's androgen level is elevated, it's actually irritating those mast cells to release histamine into the body in anticipation of fighting off a pathogen. But what ends up happening is that histamine can arrive, you know, if it's traveling throughout the whole body, it can arrive at the the stomach and then drive that proton secretion into the stomach and drive stomach acid up. Now, when we look at compounds or medicines that sort of treat that side, Zantac, which is now, um, it's sort of a, a gray area medicine towards controlling stomach acid due to probably the instance of cancer. But that was sort of the, the first um, implemented drug as a H2 antagonist that basically bound to the histamine receptor within your stomach and just said, stop making stomach acid. Very potent, very easy to take and then treat that stomach acid secretion in response to digestive stress. So a couple of years ago when Santec was available, that was sort of the solution I gave to, to Luke at the time was, obviously we can't remove some of this stress in terms of what, what it takes to prepare for a contest, but we can do sort of the conventional approach with medicine and that's try and take care of the symptoms so that it improves the quality of life. And that, that got him through the last eight weeks of his prep using the antihistamine. Now, what we really want to consider, I guess, is what breaks down histamine in the body. And that's an enzyme known as DAO or diamine oxidase. And that, that helps to oxidize histamine and allow it to be excreted as um, a, a pyrrole byproduct. Hey, hey Dr. Dean, but before yeah. you started addressing like the, the histamine process, just to go back yeah. a second, you, yeah. you had mentioned um, for one, like the acute introduction of PEDs and this driving up of the inflammatory process, but also uh, we, cause under my understanding, there's also immune su suppressive effect that higher androgen use can present. Um, is, are we, so are we looking at different timelines for these, one being acute and one over a longer duration of, uh, how, how, would, how do you separate out those two? So when we look at how, I, and I addressed this last year when people were worried about the current environment and elevated androgens, was that yeah. androgen use, uh, elevated androgens, actually have a sort of uh, polar effect when it comes to the immune system. On one side, it upregulates, and it upregulates the innate immune system. So the innate immune system is our first line of defense. So that's our macrophages, our basophils, monocytes. Um, sorry, monocytes would be the, in the adaptive, sorry. The, the main sort of macrophages and neutrophils, the ones that actively try and neutralize an invading pathogen. And then the adaptive immunity in terms of the monocytes, your B cells, T cells, they become suppressed by elevated androgen use. So your 
your adaptive immunity in terms of remembering and combating an incoming pathogen becomes affected. But your innate immunity is what actually gets upregulated. You produce more white blood cells in response to an elevated level of androgens. But like everything, if the innate immune system can't find what is being presented to it as a pathogen, then there is an adaptive mechanism where that, that immune response dies down. Do we still have that slight elevation and I guess that innate immunity trying to seek out what's present, but there's no longer that same cytokine signaling from the elevated androgen use. So we, we tend to see then that the immune system becomes adapted to that superphysiological dose after a period of say two to three weeks. And that's where we see that, that test flu drop off as we adapt to that, that higher androgen load. But for some people, that does, does that always happen? Because if we, we still see this like effect present with the GI issues, it's probably still not going away. Or it could just be the fact that like throughout a contest prep, there's a constant reintroduction of greater uh, PEDs along the way. So that, that's probably the variable too. And then all coupled with uh, going into a, you know the a further uh, starvation state and, and, and higher fatigue state, but um, so maybe yeah, that's I hard mean, to pull out of what is happening there. That that was another thing that I touched on last year when I was sort of discussing how people should view their immune system health in terms of the, the current pandemic, and that was yes, your immune system will suffer in terms of your adaptive immunity. But what's more so worrying is actually a competitive bodybuilder in a pre-contest phase, whereby 60% of your total energy intake is actually going to your immune system. So when you're like in the depths of your prep, eight weeks out where you're, you're severely under your sort of maintenance calories and you are actively in that deficit, your, your body's energy demands aren't actually going to what fuels your day-to-day -day activities. You're, you're actually then suppressing your immune system in that regard and also then we have, you know, certain individuals that don't then partake in very nutritious pre-contest diets where there's a lack of micronutrients, lack of vitamin A, unless they are actively taking supplements that boost vitamin A and vitamin D, they are going to be in a micronutrient deficiency state also. So there's, there's all that sort of to take into account when we think of how the immune system suffers with AAS use as well. No, I'm glad. I'm glad we we touched on that to separate it because with with COVID and such a big talk around the immune system, now we have immune system just this really big umbrella term, and nothing's really separated out. You're like it's and it's just everything's like immune system boosting. You know, it's immune booster. Oh, great, take it all, right? It's like there's a there's a there's a lot of like nuance that's very important nuance that to to discuss within that and separate out what's raising like the innate or the adaptive effects. And, and so I'm glad we just like went back just to, just to touch on that slightly. Um, my, my other question too would be on, um, you know, we have this increase in, in basophils, which drive an increase in, in histamine getting, getting more yep. activated. Um, yep. And within lab work, is this something, if someone was to draw labs around this time period, maybe you've seen it, uh, a change of well, like you see this elevation in the percentage of basophils, uh, maybe comparatively to neutrophils or et cetera, like, and, and does that coincide with maybe what they would be seeing um, subjectively with, with this GI distress? 
Yes, yes, you will see the elevation of basal If someone is having a chronic histamine um, issue in terms of a, an allergic reaction, so we have to sort of view this increase in histamine as a, a potential allergic reaction where these basophils are secreting histamine to kill off something, or like we say, they're, they're being provoked by a chemical within the body. But you will see an increase in basophils and blood work in someone who has chronic you know, sinus issues, chronic congestion in the head. You know, we, we don't have to just view histamine towards the, the stomach and the, the stomach distress there. Even, you know, competitive bodybuilders who sleep suffers from nasal congestion at nighttime can all play back to histamine, elevated histamine in the body, causing congestion in the sinus cavity. So there's just so many things that we can branch out of this histamine dysregulation, whereby someone's sleep could be severely impacted from lack of nasal breathing and playing into lack of deep sleep. And then, you know, chronic, I guess, um, you're not really going into that parasympathetic nervous system state during your rest period at nighttime while sleeping and digestion then suffers there and you have guys getting heartburn in their sleep. So there's just everything there that all ties back to this histamine. And, no, and that, that's, those are great points because now you're not just looking at, Oh, I have reflex. Well, what other sim- symptoms might you be driving up? And it, it could be kind of, kind of a, almost a symptom of like, cause I, I get bad seasonal allergies Obviously, there's this drive up in, in histamine, nasal congestion. Overall, feel kind of like puffy and more lethargic. And a lot of, this, this, a lot of these symptoms are histamine driven, which could be the same of what you're experiencing with PED usage. But and and it's kind of like one of these things, like oh, well, let you know, let me go off my labs. And well, if you have the symptoms, it's it's kind of you know that it usually overweighs. So, but a lot of guys are drawing these labs throughout prep, hopefully, to kind of monitor themselves. And maybe that might be something they see because uh, I think maybe a next step is looking at your your uh, CBC count. Cause I think that can be a confusing one to really break down for, for a lot of guys. But to see like, yeah, basophils, this is related to like, you know, this histamine response. Seeing that elevation might give you some further um, objective data to maybe look at and, and, and piece this all together. But um, no, thanks. Thank you for, for touching that, Dr. Dean. I, I'll loop loop you back around because I cut you <laughs> off on uh, talking about DOA and, and, and histamine and, and starting to go further into you know what what we're looking at there. Yeah, I mean, what I was trying to then bring people away from them was, like you even say with your seasonal allergies, using something like loratadine or Claritin throughout this period is basically just blocking those receptors so that you don't suffer nasal congestion when a pollen allergen lodges in your sinus cavity and triggers that histamine release. But when it comes to then digestive issues, and you, you mentioned one of them at the start, which are the proton pump inhibitors, they tend to have a severe rebound in that they block this proton pump transport from happening, lowering stomach acid secretion. But one of few compounds that actually causes severe rebound that when you remove the compound, the stomach actually upregulates and starts flooding the stomach with more hydrogen ions to increase stomach acid. That's where the reflux comes back with a vengeance and people mm. go down the route of PPIs. Um, so using antihistamines would be just more of a, a crutch to get you through a seasonal period or even, you know, if you're in this contest phase. But really, we want to try and implement something that's going to stop us from even having to think of removing a symptom and being symptom free. And that's where DAO becomes very important. 
DAO, like I said, is diamine oxidase. It's a copper containing enzyme. So what DAO does is it hydrolyzes, it breaks down histamine to be simply excreted then in our urine. A lot of people fail to appreciate their copper needs. And what we tend to see in a lot of bodybuilders is sky high zinc intake. And that skews the transport of copper because the two of them act on the same metallotionin complex. So they, they both share the same sort of transport protein. And we do have to have a, a balanced ratio of zinc to copper in our bodies, not just for overall health, but it has a, a critical role in mental health also. So that, that copper balance is very important and making sure that we are getting an adequate copper supply. And it's one of the ones that's a little difficult to get from food. So I tend to tell guys, you know, look for a good multivitamin where you're getting about two milligrams of a, a, a copper chelate. That tends to supply the body with enough copper to take care of DAO, unless you have a genetic deficiency where you're not making enough DAO. Now, DAO, the gene that makes DAO is called DAO also. And that gene can get slowed down by chronic infections. So like I touched on parasites, it can get slowed down by um, uh, high histamine containing foods. So if you're eating a lot of very um, acidic based foods or even fermented foods, and this is sort of a, a catch 22 that you have guys who are ingesting prebiotic and probiotics from say fermented foods like sauerkraut or even kombucha thinking that it's having a positive effect on their digestion but these fermented foods are actually sky high in histamine so you're actually just dumping your body with more histamine even though you're giving the body some beneficial bacteria it's sort of outweighing the, the benefits that you're going to get from that food so uh, vinegars hist um, kombucha pickled foods all these sort of foods that we see guys in sort of a contest scenario try and include in their diet. Oh, let's include sauerkraut for digestive health. Let's add in, you know, pickles uh, to act as a, an appetite suppressant or as a small stack that's calorie free. And guys aren't really them thinking of, oh, actually I'm putting more histamine into the body. The other thing then that massively increases histamine is cooling so cooking your food allowing it to cool and then reheating your food reheating food um, turns over obviously we have bacteria growing on the food turns over the amount of histamine that these bacteria are creating on the surface of our food again increasing the histamine content of that food and similarly when you're in sort of a, a contest phase or you have a busy lifestyle you're prepping days of food in advance that's going in the fridge and you're taking it out and you're reheating it in order to eat it. So you're sort of then looking to either, you know, cook food fresh or eat your food cold. Um, that, that's a unique one. I don't think most people are going to know that one because we do live off like the, the bulk like, cook method. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Unless you're very privileged and you cook every meal, you know, exactly. as it comes. But uh, most people are, are, are reheating their foods and, is that more specific to certain foods that have higher rates of bacterial growth versus others? It, it would. So it'd be mainly, you know, rice, car carbohydrates specifically. Yeah. You, you, you wouldn't really see the histidine content within your, within your, you know, animal protein source is going to say remain constant. Um, so that they can all play into how DAO operates. 
Uh, so we, we like proper food safety storage and getting it down to cool temperatures at a at a reasonable rate, not like cooking your rice and let's sit on the counter overnight, <laughs> then putting it in the fridge. Exactly. I mean, maybe that's nuanced, right? But maybe it, it does uh, make a difference. Yeah, I mean, like when, when guys have dilabating, you know, stomach reflux, any of these small little sort of easy win strategies are going to probably play a big role. Because again, stomach distress, of course, it's a little uncomfortable throughout the day, but it's mainly at night time when we start to try and relax, lying flat, the esophageal sphincter completely relaxes. That's when you're going to really suffer. Um, and I guess that's where guys then see some of the, the side effects. So do we also see a benefit in something along the lines of like delimiting with trying to upregulate like gastric mucus and stuff like that? And helping it? <laughs> It, it, that is a good strategy that I've never even really thought about that you could but I guess the other side of this is the the long-term detriment in terms of degrading that 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 mucus lining of the stomach that leads to an ulcer then yeah and and that in itself then is sort of something that we're thinking longer term as a, a negative consequence to upregulate stomach acids um and and at that point, then you sort of then fall into a, a very bleak category where you are going to be relying on proton pump inhibitors to maintain a low stomach acid concentration. But that's going to have a further then you know effect into your food intake in the long run. So it really does sort of start coming back to stripping the layers and going back to to addressing that basic issue of of the increased histamine. Yes. So. So that's kind of like the food component that can that can drive it. So what what else would we we be looking at uh, dietary wise that can or supplementation wise to help with this histamine clearance process? So so mainly, like I said, copper is going to be the first one, and then. then I'm sorry, Dr. Dean, you cut out for for about uh, 15 Um, seconds. Could you repeat what you said? Yeah, sorry. So uh, what I was saying was you'd be then looking at to um, implement the copper first off to improve how DAO functions. And then you can take DAO as a supplement also. So like, like lipase, amylase, and protease, DAO does exist as a synthetic supplement. And this was sort of them with, with supplement needs who I formulate with, we created a, a digestive stack that is geared for the specific improvement of overall digestive health. And that's one of the, the components in it is 300 micrograms of DAO. Okay. But again lowering the lowering the trigger so if we know that AAS is one of the triggers and we can't really afford that um especially in terms of the in a contest prep scenario where we're using a very strong binding androgen such as trembolone you're then really limited in terms of your compound selection and cosmetic benefit if you had to drop out that compound so uh, speaking Speaking on that, because we, we bring up the liver and liver stress driving, of course, a lot of the digestive process, you know, that's needed and the things that we're creating are around the liver, 
bile acids, and a lot of dysfunction around the liver results in poor digestion. And uh, some of these compounds, of course, your methylated orals have more oxidative stress that present to the liver, but that's also not just dependent on methylated orals because it's really around the androgen receptor binding in the liver. Exactly. So even then high, higher loads of an injectable steroid can still present this liver stress, which can yeah. then present into digestive issues. And so uh, there's, it's interesting talking about androgen receptor binding because we have a lot of these of that information comes from our, uh, the rat studies, right? Looking at binder receptors yeah. and we're like gauging like, oh, this is a strong drug based off of this binding, which we know this, this isn't quite completely accurate off those, those yeah. bioassays, but there's some orals like methylated orals like Anavar that doesn't necessarily have the, the strongest binding affinity to the androgen receptor, but then we have like injectables that, that do, that could present more liver, liver stress. So as, as a blanket statement of, hey, orals are going to give you more liver and digestive issues that maybe that's not completely true. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe, maybe we, we, we could touch on that on the actual, you know, if there's a, is there a way we can modify compound selection uh, to mitigate the effects? And then what does that mean for, for liver function and going into digestive health? Oh, yeah. So I, I guess in terms of what, what culprits would be the main sort of, I guess for causing digestive issues and it's probably them all like what you touched on there. There's not like you can go, you can go and blame. I was taking testosterone and now I've added in um, oxandrolone or uh, oxymetolone. I've added in an oral to improve uh, strength and central nervous system activation. And that's what's caused my liver stress. Mm -hmm. You now have to take into account central nervous system activation and being in that sympathetic nervous system state quite longer than that parasympathetic nervous system state as a, a sort of artifact of your training it's not just necessarily that oh the oxymetolone is causing androgen receptor activation in the liver it's more toxic and therefore i've got more digestive issues we have to take into account what actually happens again to the physiology when we add in these compounds as well um we also have to then consider, yes, in terms of the oral methylated steroids, we have second pass metabolism occurring as opposed to first pass metabolism only happening with injectables. So the, in theory, the biotransformation of a, a methylated oral occurs twice, whereas with injectables, we really have either sulfation or glucuronidation. We have one of those conjugated mechanisms happening after the molecule has been oxidized by CYP. So with, with the orals, I wouldn't necessarily say that the orals themselves cause liver distress, but what they do play a critical role then is what you talked about is bile acid and bile flow from the gallbladder. And that is a specific problem then in that you can end up with cholestasis. And we have human studies from Dianabol showing this cholestatic jaundice occurring from pure Dianabol use back in the 80s, whereby the cholesterol should normally be filtered out of the liver through the bile ducts with bile into the small intestine for clearance, ends up crystallizing inside the bile ducts. And what you end up happening there is blocking the bile duct and the bile actually backflows into the liver. 
Now, that bile backflow is it's carrying everything that's toxic in inverted commas that's supposed to be draining out into the smaller intestine for elimination and causing hepatocyte injury. So that's where we start to see fibrosis start to occur on top of that oxidative stress when we're trying to use the oxidative mechanisms of the CYPs. That then coupled on top of super physiological levels of androgens prevents uh, what we call these buccal stem cells that we have within the spleen from entering into the liver and repairing the liver. So it's sort of a combination of everything in the picture as opposed to the orals themselves being the, the toxic substance. That hepatocyte injury then will play into obviously how much hepatic digestive enzymes you're going to be making because you're destroying these cells. And that plays a role then into the pancreas having to try and make up for some of that deficiency because the two of them sort of work in tandem where, you know, when, when, when a person has their gallbladder removed, that bile comes from somewhere else, which is mainly either the liver and a small bit from the pancreas. So we, we then start to put stress on that system to try and make up for this injury that's occurring in the background. Uh, and that, 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 of course, makes a lot of sense. And I think a lot of people have only associated using orals and hepatic stress. And uh, it, that is just, that's not the case. It's uh, truly, the, the devil is probably in the dosage of these things. So I know we bring up trimbolone and it, it's a, it binds the injury receptor strong enough. But if you take enough of any one of these drugs, like you'll run into these same issues, whether it's enough testosterone or primavolin or whichever you're choosing. Um, the, the devil's in the dose, like the milligram for milligram, things are stronger than others. Um, but if you're taking three times of a weaker drug, well, now it's a strong drug, right? Um, yeah. but, uh, yeah, th those common issues that we, the most common issue in steroid use around the liver is cholestasis and build up of bile acids, which definitely could in impede your ability to emulsify fats and digest them and slow down that whole digestive digestive process um, yeah. is uh, so uh, you know around this this liver stress obviously the the thing is hey drop your dose back bro but if when is this not the situation what are things to have in place that can support that process of methylation in the liver and also uh, uh, removing bile acids and allowing them to back up yeah so so what you can then do is you can Again, this is sort of when I'm formulating for supplement needs, I'm going back to that. What is the root cause? And with the liver stack that I made was this exact scenario. Why do we see liver problems in bodybuilders? And it all points at the gallbladder and bile. So if we can stop that cholestasis from forming, we help to preserve how the liver transports fats. So again, we don't want fatty liver disease building up from uh, inadequate transport of fats out into the small intestine. What we can look at is imp implementing a synthetic form of bile in the form of ox bile, which is pretty much, uh, I'm not going to say bioidentical, but almost very similar to what humans produce in terms of its bile acid content. So we can use uh, ox bile as a synthetic form of bile to help emulsify those fats to then ensure that the bile ducts themselves cells are receiving adequate flow of bile and pushing that cholesterol down into the small intestine. We can then look at Im improving, I guess, the, the viscosity of the bile with bile acid conjugates, 
like Tudke or Udke, whichever former person wishes to use. And all you're doing there again is just improving the viscosity and the flow of that bile so that it's not as viscous to cause cholestasis when the bile looks. Um, then the choline and non-acetal are two very critical um, compounds that feed into how the liver transports triglycerides. Choline, if guys, again, this comes back to then a pre-contest setup in terms of diet. Choline-rich foods tend to be quite um, fat-rich, so we're talking about mainly you know, egg yolks, which aren't going to really be in abundance when it comes to a pre-contest bodybuilders diet. They're, they're not really going to have the majority of fat coming from egg yolks. So either they're going to implement choline as a supplement or phosphatidylcholine as, as a supplement also to improve the, the bile flow within their liver. And this sort of ties into, as an aside, pregnant women who suffer with nausea tends to be from a lack of uh, choline within their liver. And obviously that plays into the gallbladder. And that can play then into the histamine and nausea that happens with morning sickness and pregnancy. I was going to mention, isn't there also a link within Alzheimer's disease, increases in histamine and and lack of choline and and how that system has some interplay? Yeah, Yeah, and the same with with elevated histamine playing into Parkinson's also. So it's, histamine isn't just like this one compound. It has so much global effects that it acts, it, it can be classified as a neurotransmitter as well. And I, I think that's because, uh, you know, with, with what we do, like your main organ systems, like a lot of people talk about the liver, I know, but uh, for me, like brain, kidney, heart, like these are three systems that are so important in, uh, in PED use, take the biggest hits and not sure you'll see in long term. So, um, and, and part of this could be around just, could, could we say elevated histamine levels affecting with lack of choline over years and years of doing this could be impactful, yeah. maybe Choline ostol might be something that we should have supplementing in the background always. Uh, would would you say so, or just during times that we're in contest prep and we're lacking those sources in the diet? No, so I I can't see any reason why you couldn't include, say, eight hundred milligrams of choline and eight hundred milligrams of inositol, a balanced ratio to two year round. We just have to take into account that when we have very high choline intake it can have a positive impact in that it can lower your blood pressure significantly. So for people who are hypotensive, this can be a nightmare, but for people who are borderline hypertensive, it can actually bring their blood pressure down about 10 points. Um, and we see that with people who take quite high dosages of um, uh, liposomal products, because liposomal products are, are made from a phosphatidylcholine base. And, and, I've seen you recommend one too, because we're, we're on the topic of liver function is liposomal uh, glutathione. And at least here in the United States, there was a recent, uh, there's some discussion on N-acetylcysteine uh, being now as a pharmaceutical drug. And there's been pulled from a lot of the sellers. And so a lot of people are like, what, what do we take in, to replace our N-acetylcysteine? And uh, maybe you might touch on liposomal uh, glutathione. Yeah. So, so glutathione is sort of the, the master antioxidant that your body produces as a, a conjugative mechanism for eliminating toxic substances from your liver. So just to keep it really simple, your liver has two 
metabolic transformation pathways. We call them phase one and phase two. Phase one is biotransformations. So we're destroying the structure of that compound to change its function. So in other words, say for testosterone, we're going to change a little part of the molecule so it's no longer testosterone technically. Now that in itself may not actually be useful to remove the compound from the body because it still has to be excreted. And we have the two main sort of sources of excretion and that's our urine for water soluble compounds and then our feces for fat soluble. So the liver then has to do another biotransformation through phase two and that's a conjugative mechanism where it attaches a molecule like glutathione or like um, a glucuronate or like a sulfate, any of these compounds that then make the compound more water soluble to be allowed to be transported to the kidneys for excretion. So glutathione acts in a phase two conjugation mechanism, but our environment, our current environment puts a heavy stress on glutathione within our body. We have several environmental factors. We have the food we ingest. We have electromagnetic radiation exposure that can cause oxidative stress. And obviously then our body has to use glutathione to mitigate the oxidative stress. So we're sort of in this environment now where we, we really heavily rely on this antioxidant in order to offset oxidative stress and the diseases that come from it. N-acetylcysteine, as you said, fed into providing a sulfur donor source in order for your body to create glutathione. So glutathione, we have several enzymes in the body that recycles. When glutathione is reduced and it's used to its oxidized form, we can then replenish our glutathione stores by adding more cysteine or sulfur donors into the system to keep that glutathione recycling. Liposomal glutathione then was developed um, as a method to improve the bioavailability of oral reduced glutathione. So you could take oral reduced glutathione as a supplement, but it only has roughly a five to 10% bioavailability. So you lose the majority of what you're taking, specifically because glutathione is just three amino acids that have been conjugated together. The liposomal products then bypass this stomach hydrolysis because the glutathione now is microencapsulated inside a phospholipid membrane. And what's beneficial here is obviously phospholipids can pass through the phospholipid membrane of our cells themselves, become lysed and deliver the contents inside the cell where it's needed. Aside from the liver, the main sort of powerhouses in our body that utilize uh, glutathione is the mitochondria. So we're sort of feeding, as the mitochondria oxidize glucose and go through glycolysis, they're producing, they're producing uh, free radicals that require an antioxidant from glutathione to stop damage to the inside of our cells. And, you know, if you look at the uncoupling mechanism, say, for example, of DNP, that's one of the negative side effects that can lead to the likes of cataracts is because of the mitochondria in your eyes are getting heavily damaged. And as one of the regions in your body has actually the most amount of mitochondria, so when we see that oxidative stress happening in the eyes leading to cataracts, it's actually because DMP has caused so much uncoupling inside those cells that it requires glutathione intake to offset that oxidative stress from that excessive uncoupling. 
so glutathione is definitely something that uh, someone in a, a pre-contest phase could implement. But it all comes back to blood work then. We can, we can look at how glutathione is being recycled in blood work by looking at GGT, which is gamma glutamyl transferase. It's a peptide that's involved in the recycling of glutathione. If we start to see elevations in GGT, then we know that there's actually um, a, a deficiency of glutathione within the system. And most recently, what's sort of interesting here is GGT can actually play as a predictor towards oxidative stress that leads to cardiovascular disease. So we're sort of looking at optimally within blood work, GGT falling somewhere between 16 and 20. Yet, you know, your reference lab range goes anywhere up to 10 to 70. So we have this really distinct range that we know from current literature in the last 10 years that for optimal health, we should be striving for GGT between 16 and 20. Not just for liver health, but also for cardiovascular. Would, you know, I, I tell guys to add on GGT onto their labs. And uh, would you, and I, this is what I say, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, the GGT enzyme is more liver specific than AST and ALT? Because I've seen like AST, ALT have some slight elevations and possibly this is more training related but their GGT is within that, like, you know, that, that correct reference range. Deciphering between those, would you say, you know, if you, if you fell within that, uh, is, would GGT be, be more specific to liver stress versus the others? It, it possibly could, or what I would add on would be ALP, because okay. your alkaline phosphatase is actually specific to the liver. But you can also this is another aside because we're discussing it, AST and ALT operate within a specific ratio within the body. So you sort of look, what is the ratio between the two? If it's anything over one, then we know that there is fibrosis risk happening in the liver. If it's less than one, so see you have elevations in AST and ALT where the reference range is up to, I think, 60 for both. Say both of them are 75 and 75. Well, let me know that the ratio between the two of them is one. So there's, there's no specific liver injury risk there due to the ratio of the two. It's, it's almost when the two of them become sort of two is to one, then you need to start worrying that there's actual liver injury happening and the hepatocytes are being broken down and releasing these enzymes into the body. Does that go either way with, with them or is it one? So, so the AST to ALT ratio. So the AST, if that's higher than, than one to ALT, then you're, you're looking at liver injury. Um, generally, generally, if you look at any blood work, that AST to ALT ratio is normally less than, than one and there's, there's minimal risk. Um, but that's another way of deciphering if there's liver injury happening. But GGT, as you said, because it is specific to the liver and it plays a role in that glutathione recycling, if there is a a skew and that we know there is stress happening at the liver where we're not producing enough GGT. That could be either, like you said, hepatocyte injury, or it could be an artifact of your, your nutrient intake where you're not actually taking in enough sulfur donor sources from either N-acetylcysteine or foods, or you may need to implement, you know, liposomal glutathione to just push that GGT production along. So you're saying like you might, if we saw an elevation of AST, ALT and low GGT, that would be problematic versus like an elevation of GTT. Like we want the higher level of GTT. 
So low, yeah, low can be actually more uh, as detrimental as high GGT. Low GGT, low GGT still reflects back onto your glutathione state because also when glutathione gets broken down, it can go down a glutamate pathway. So you can lose your glutathione level, your glutathione recycling capability to glutamate. So that's where that GGT becomes important as well. Uh, we, we look at whether it's low or whether it's high. If it's high, we can, we can turn that back to there is a high conversion rate of our glutathione because you have more of that enzyme present. And then when the GGT is very low, we have low recycling capability of, G, of glutathione. And does that play into are we using up glutathione too fast and not making enough GGT? Or is it that we have a low glutathione system as well? So it's 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 a it's a very complex one, but I'm glad you brought that up because it's people tend to look at it and think, oh, just GGT, but it really is a critical one when we look at how the how the liver itself works. Yeah, I felt like we couldn't have this discussion today without talking about the liver. All these organ systems are integrated in some extent. So and I know where our focus is going to be on like like reflux, right? Kind of um, around, but to to and I know like we're coming up on our, our hour here, so to kind of loop this all all back, um, we have our bodybuilder that's been constant food basis, implemented PDs, and having this this reflux occur. We don't have the option to lower compound selection during this phase so that's like not not an option so we're gonna you know within this make sure that we are supporting those systems that can remove histamine so have an adequate amount of copper uh, doa maybe we should look at supplement needs for dr dean's yeah. digestive support you can plug that dr dean <laughs> yeah I, I mean like when i when we released uh, the digestive stack and then we, we've released a new product today called glucox which is like a gda when i'm making these products i'm very mindful that with the digestive stack for example it's not a product that you're going to pop at every single meal it's not like a digestive enzyme if you want that you know buy some other brands you know pancreatin complex this is specifically designed to um control or improve those um parietal cells within your stomach so they rely on so this is where again we come back to copper and zinc the parietal cells of the stomach need zinc histamine needs copper okay. most bodybuilders will have an abundance of zinc within their body and low copper but what can also happen is you can have lack of zinc specifically within the parietal cells whereby the proton pumps aren't working efficiently then so with with the digestive stack it was more so a product that you'd take in the morning time that would improve how you digest your first meal, play a role into increasing your stomach acid if you have low stomach acid, have the DAO present to help lower any histamine from overnight. And then we have you know a, a standardized ginger extract where the gingerols are helping with stomach motility to bring back appetite, basically. So it's not like uh, when I'm making these things, I'm not thinking, let's just take something to get rid of the symptom we go back you know to where we started with the, the root cause and trying to improve the symptoms coming from the root cause no and i, I think that that makes the most sense of of trying to solve any of these problems is, is starting at the root issue and so we're having these root issues implementing something like that as a as this supportive role 
for the root cause would, would make the most sense, like, like the product that you formulated. Then the same, the same bodybuilder can look through the food sources that they're implementing too that might be driving yeah. up histamine, right? So the high fermentable foods, um, looking at reheating foods in that process. Uh, if for some reason, maybe they're using more packaged meats or things of this nature that would have a high yeah, possibility. Cured. Yeah. cured meats, cured meats, smoked meats, smoked fish, uh, all these play into um, histamine as well because of how they've been cured. So it could be as simple as you're, for, I guess, convenience sake, you're going to the store and you're just buying cooked chicken breast in, you know, in a yeah. cooked pack. I've done it, really turkey, thinking, right? Yeah, exactly. Like, okay. <laughs> you know, it's simple, it's easy, but um, and, and I understand that. So, you know, we, we, we look at the food sources next and then from there, if we're still having these issues, say with reflux, then that might be when we have some type of, some other type of, some, like I, you mentioned you had Zantac, is that what you had Luke doing? But there's other options though, right? If, if you're still having reflux. Yeah, there is. Yeah. I mean, even, even the likes of Claritin that we use for um, hay fever will have global what, what antihistamine uh, Benadryl. So I've had, I've used Benadryl to sleep, help with sleep at night, but it's also an antihistamine. Yes. You can use Benadryl as well. The diphenhydramine is also similar to the uh, loratadine and Claritin. It's a, I think it's a second generation antihistamine. So you're, you're, you're going to end up with global antihistamine, uh, I guess, histamine receptor antagonism where you're blocking the, the histamine receptor. So you could definitely, if you're struggling, especially at reflux at nighttime, taking Benadryl before sleep is going to play into that histamine, you know, blocking that histamine while sleeping and offsetting that uh, reflux as well. And then the, the application, like if someone's like, oh, I'm just going to use this PPI, um, would, would you see, have you used zinc carnosine? as uh an, an alternative to this at all yeah and that's what that's what's within the digestive stack of zinc carnosine a 150 milligrams of zinc carnosine because obviously the carnosine plays into how that proton pump works and then the zinc plays an important role in the actual parietal cell itself of course so there were more zinc in competing with copper right <laughs> exactly so really comes down to this very minutiae of when you you have to really be critical of that person's intake of zinc, and that's another warning I make with the, the digestive stack is if you're taking other sources of zinc, you have to be mindful that you're pushing your zinc load further away from your copper. And and in itself, high zinc can be more detrimental than high copper or low copper. So it, it, that's another thing as well that just sort of to close it off is you have to truly think of, is this a overproduction of stomach acid or underproduction of stomach acid both will result in the same symptom of heartburn most people chronically have low stomach acid from not chewing their food so there's um, inadequate me mechanical digestion in the mouth and then the stomach isn't making enough pepsin pepsinogen and hydrochloric acid to break down at those peptides then efficiently so you end up then with this low stomach acid setting and ultimately then when that passes into the small intestine, you have fermentation and bad gas. So it's, you know, you're sort of looking at the symptoms of, am I chronically burping, which is a sign of low stomach acid? Okay. Um, am I having bad foul smelling gas, which is another sign of uh, maldigestion of protein? And you're all playing that back then to, okay, this all makes sense. Then I've, I've actually low stomach acid and my 
reflux and heartburn is actually because of the food that is within my stomach isn't actually being effectively digested properly. And that food volume is allowing that food to push on the sphincter and allow some of the acids to burn the esophagus. In that application, then I've, I've used like betaine HCL. Yeah. Supportive along with meals just to, to raise up the hydrochloric acid content. Yeah. And that's a great, that's a great solution. And uh, the betaine HCL will always have pepsin in it as well. So okay. it's, even for myself, I went through a period where I actually done a, a test for uh, Helicobacter pylori because I, I was actually starting to really question my own digestive health one year um, because of the um, symptoms I was having in my stomach. That test came back negative. But as soon as I started implementing quite a high dose of betaine HCL to start and then slowly titrating down, um, my stomach acid production has been perfect since. So it's it's definitely, it's one of those ones that taking a couple of betaine HCL capsules might help, but uh, from based off what we sort of read and how we use betaine HCL as a supplement, we try and get to that upper ceiling of how many you can take before we start to feel the effects of the increased HCL. Because obviously how betaine HCL works is the betaine cleaves away and leaves the hydrochloride salt in the stomach to increase the levels of hydrochloric acid. So we can, we can effectively then um, provide the body with betaine, which is also a metal donor that plays into methylation and obviously the liver health, but also the, the HCL and to increase the stomach acid content. So don't be afraid to play with the dose of betaine HCL. Most bottles will just say, take one with a meal. Yeah. You have to find what sort of the, the sweet spot for, for that protein content based on what your stomach acid is producing. I've heard people taking up to like 10 pills with a meal. Yeah, I've been there. And <laughs> then you can, you can, you can actually test. It's a very like old wives way of testing stomach acid, but you make up a concentrated solution of baking soda and water. You drink it and you time how long it takes you to burp. Yeah. And yeah, obviously so fasted in the morning. You know. Fast in the morning. So what you're looking at there is a simple neutralization reaction where the carbonate gets neutralized to produce carb carbon dioxide and you burp. I think it's like if you burp within, I think it's been two two or two and a half minutes, you have adequate stomach acid. It's like quarter quarter teaspoon baking soda with five ounces of water first thing in the morning. That's it. Well, and, and that's a test. I mean, then of course, if you just implement betaine HCL, if you start taking it, it's like my stomach acid's worse. I have more burning. Well, that's probably also like, well, okay, you probably have enough acid. It's probably the, the you know, maybe it's the other way. Um, yeah, with the histamine. Right, right. So, that, I mean, that kind of gives you some clear ways to, to filter the, through those waters. Um, and, and then the, lastly, just to sum up what, what we had talked about, also supporting uh, liver function with, with some type of uh, support for phase one, phase two conjugation detoxification, like using a liposome of glutathione. But then also supporting this this bile system, so having something with like ox bile and then uh, tuca and choline and inositol, all support that system to relieve the stress that might be in place from using uh, anabolic steroids. Yeah, right? and uh, so that kind of I think that really rounds out a, a good framework for people having those issues in the background, and how we give some support role to it. Um, is there anything that we missed throughout that conversation, Dr. Dean, that, that you want to touch on or close on? Um, I, I guess one final aside that would also be, we've been looking at androgens 
estradiol itself can also a high mm. estrogen load can play into uh, imbalanced histamine. So again, it sort of comes back to if we are using high amounts of aromatizable compounds that we're actually looking at where estradiol is sitting as well, because that can have an effect into liver function as well as then a histamine imbalance. So it sort of ties everything back together again. That, like we said, it's probably not just one specific compound that we can call the, sure. the devil. It's it's actually the details and how much you're taking. And then we have like a complication of like polypharmacy occurring, which um, you know even because I've seen if I have tracking of blood glucose over time and in individuals using growth hormone and we're seeing this glucose rise and kind of this insulin resistance form. I, I see this coincide with, with a drop off in digestion and appetite with elevations in, in glucose levels. I'm sure some of these glucose transporters, GLP-1, uh, they're all affected within getting a little bit of insulin resistance and, pro and probably the background driver is inflammation occurring. Um, yeah. And I'm sure that's a whole another one to go down as far as getting the right support with the inflammatory processes and, and de decreasing, increasing insulin sensitivity. Um, as well. Would you agree to that? Yeah, no, definitely. And, and I guess then it all comes back to what I sort of said at the start, and it's all triggered by food volume and that lack of sensitivity or the, the loss of sensitivity to the body chronically over time. And, you know, as bodybuilders, we, we tend to form this heavy married relationship to the food we're currently eating and not willing to take a break right. when that sometimes mm -hmm. that's actually probably the best thing for your body um we, we also have to sort of view digestion as an aging process so for constantly driving digestion all the time or driving mTOR we're, we're aging the body at a faster rate than what an, an average individual would be doing with, with lower food volume and that sort of then plays into the argument that, you know, as boring as they are, regular periods of fasting throughout an off-season can be, you know, a driver of, of health and a driver of keeping digestion um, healthy throughout that whole process. I think it's, uh, and I, I've done this too, it's, I think it's the mindset you have to get out of, like, if you're in this especially it's blast phases when guys are like, no, I only push food up. Body weight must only increase. And it's like, if you just even took a week in that phase, we're like, Hey, you're noticing this creep up, pull back on food, decrease, you know, that, that load and strain, then go back and you'll see like prior stabilization of blood glucose, improvement in digestion, have some days where you have some fasting in place. And in one week in the big, long, long scheme of what we're doing here is not going to hold you back. But also you're bringing to the point of this is this is the rationale of having these almost a maintenance phase or a health phase, if you want to call it, because I, I hate maintenance phase. I sell it to some guys. And they're like maintenance, like, dude, it's only grow or grow more and no maintenance. And it's like, OK, well, let's let's call it something different. But uh, health phase or a, I usually call them solidification phases. Right. You solidify the gains. Uh, um, but a lot of that process is also like health longevity in mind. But I think that's uh, what doing these podcasts with you is what we're trying to bring more awareness from and, and having an approach that is uh, less risky um, and than when what has been done and bringing just awareness that these are even issues that are happening in the background that you should be aware of. 
Yeah. Uh, thank you for sharing your knowledge and everything you've done to push this forward to the forefront. We, it's truly appreciated. No, I'm, I'm very glad to come on and, and even just share what I know if people are willing to listen. I mean, <laughs> like, like you said at the start, I just started off on Train by JP as just a, as a member, just answering questions. And that was the only sort of forum I was involved in because as I was getting older, I started to see that we have these questions in bodybuilding that there has to be clear signs to them. And we, we have to sort of start moving away from this, oh, just take X for this problem. Actually start telling people, you know what, you have this problem because this has gone wrong and this is how we fix it from day dot. And, you know, we can get your health back on track without actually you know, suffer now and then fix it later. So I think that's, that's critically important of, as we move into the, you know, these next few future years of bodybuilding and, and obviously health and fitness that people become aware of this mentality of let's get to the root cause and implement a strategy there rather than dealing with the consequences later on. Yeah. I think it's an exciting time and even for general health and medicine, because a lot of people are now learning that you really need to be your own advocate for your healthcare, and there's a lot more out on pro progressive healthcare and functional medicine, and getting down to root causes before you just give in. Like, here's this drug for this symptom, and and we're seeing it kind of widespread now too in the world. And and so I think that it, it does leak into and maybe it starts in health and fitness because we are more progressive and looking at root cause root, root issues to and solve problems. Um, but I, I think it is an exciting area. But looking to the future, I, I would definitely agree. But um, th again, thank you for coming on and, and truly appreciate it. Uh, this is J3U podcast and we will talk to you next time. Thanks everybody.